Well, this is not the main point of the passage, but it is important enough that I thought I'd mention it here in the introduction. In Numbers 11 and verse 4, our ESV says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The King James, however, says, Now the mixed multitude that was among them. That's a pretty big difference. If you remember in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 38, it says that there was a mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt with the Israelites, which was people who were not Israelites, and if they came up out of Egypt, who were they most likely? Egyptians, right? Who had seen the hand of God and the wonders that Yahweh had worked, exalting himself over the gods of Egypt. And they had left and forsaken the gods of Egypt to take shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. This was the mixed multitude. Now, if the interpretation um, that we ought to have is that then these people in Numbers 11.4 are the people complaining, that what we have is an ethnic issue where people who are not Israelites are leading the Israelites astray. Turns out that it's totally different words. And it's not in the Hebrew, it is not the mixed multitude. So that seems to be just a very poor translation on the part of the King James uh, translators. In contrast, I think the ESV has it better here. It's just basically um, now the rabble or some, something like that. It's sort of, a, sort of a derogatory pejorative term for like people, but not, not the greatest people. <laughs> so rabble's fine. Um, just point that out. Again, it's not the main point of the message tonight, but I find that to be a very significant translation issue, and I want to mention it as we go, lest anyone derive the wrong conclusions from uh, that passage. Now, moving towards the main point of tonight's sermon, let us look here at the people's complaints, and there are, there are two here. The people in chapter 11 and verse 1 complain in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. What misfortunes? We're not told. It's not, it's not specified. You know how, how unfortunate they have been to have been you know, brought out of Egypt where there were you know, melons and leeks and cucumbers and, and meat. How unfortunate they have been to been, have been put under, you know, this covenant with God, whereby they might have a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. And, you know, what, what terrible misfortune <laughs> these, these people have experienced. I mean, obviously I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. No doubt that they were in some discomfort. I mean, let's be honest, if, if we were tasked with going and living in a desert for... Um, over a year as these guys have been so far, surely there were, there were legitimately some discomforts. Let's not, let's not discount that. No doubt they grew tired of the manna which they had been eating for over a year now. And we're, we're still, we don't know really what manna was. The, the name manna actually literally means apparently, what is it? <laughs> So, the literal translation is that God sent the what is it from heaven. Uh, we, don't, we don't really know. Our best description is actually here in the passage before us. It was like coriander seed. Um, and one of the commentators points out, not in its color, because 
apparently it was whitish as opposed to black like coriander seed. So, so presumably we're talking then about the shape and the texture. So it was some kind of like small seed-like round thing that people went out and gathered and crushed up and ground together and made little cakes with. And it says the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. So I don't know exactly, you know, like even if it was like a really nice salt bread or a really nice like sweet cake or something, if that was literally what you were eating over and over again for a year, I mean, you could understand to some extent, but I just find it, I just find it's a bit of a, a bit of an overstatement for people to complain about their misfortunes. Those who have been rescued from Egypt, those who have been brought into covenant with the Lord God, uh, those who have the promise that He will be with them wherever they go, those who are being guided by the cloud uh, by day and the, the fire by night to be planted on Mount Zion in a land of their own and so forth. It seems a little bit of an overstatement to talk about their misfortunes. But that's their first complaint. They're just grumbling about their misfortunes. The next point is more specifically about food. They had no meat, no fish, no cucumbers, no melons, no leeks, no onions, and no garlic. Just to name eight uh, specific deficiencies here. You know? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. Mm. Right later on, um, they ask, "Why did we come out of Egypt? Why? After all, it was it was better there, right? Making bricks without straw, and being beaten by our taskmasters, but sitting around pots of meat with leeks and onions and like." There's this forgetfulness, this amnesia of, of what it was like. And there's this grumbling specifically about the food, but they're looking back really fondly on Egypt through rose-colored uh, glasses here. In reality, the Lord had brought them out of slavery in Egypt. The Lord had brought them into relationship with Himself, and the Lord was feeding them with bread from heaven. Far from being those who had experienced misfortune and whose lot in life was better when they were in Egypt, God had actually improved their lot in life greatly. God had actually been very benevolent to them and very kind to them in rescuing them from Egypt. Nevertheless, these are the complaints of the people. But not only do the people complain here, but Moses complains here. Look at verse 12. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? You realize what he's saying here, right? These are not my kids. I shouldn't have to be responsible for them. Right? This is what this is what Moses is saying to the Lord. <clears throat> and then his next complaint is in verse 14. This burden is too heavy for me. 
I'm not able to carry all these people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Now here is... Here are the people then making complaints of one sort against the Lord. And here is Moses making complaints of another sort against the Lord. And indeed, these complaints were against the Lord. These people were complaining about food. But if you think about it, who is that complaint really directed towards? Who is feeding them? Who is in charge of their menu? It's the Lord. And so their complaint is really against the Lord. There is a sense of ingratitude and a sense of entitlement underlying these things. They're feeling like they really deserve more than miraculous bread from heaven and a covenantal relationship with God and a promise of the promised land. I mean, yeah, sure, it's great that God did all of these things, but why has He not provided melons and leeks and onions and garlic and meat? I mean, doesn't the Lord know who we are and what we deserve? Right? You see how there's this ingratitude here, this failure to appreciate what God has done and an entitlement as if they are owed something more than what God has already done for them. In this way, the sin was really against the Lord. By way of application, when you complain, if you complain, although I know most of you probably never do, right? But, but some of us do. And if and when we do, we may, we may think that we're complaining about our employer or our spouse or the medical system or the government or whatever else. But there is a fine line between constructive realism and grumbling about God's providence undergirded by ingratitude and a sense of entitlement. Now, if I were to say you really shouldn't be ungrateful, or I mean, pardon me, you really shouldn't complain about the government. I mean, Bar- the Barbadian government is the best. Everything about the Barbadian government is fantastic. They are so efficient, so responsible. They take such good care of us. There is no deficiency. Well, if, you, if you see a problem with the Barbadian government, something's wrong with you. <laughs> if I were to say that, it would, it would not be very realistic. It would not be very accurate. Right? So on the one hand, it's, it's reasonable to take a realistic view of the deficiency of things. And if you're in a position to do so, to constructively work towards a solution. But constructively working towards a solution involves first acknowledging the problem and identifying it clearly and accurately. Even as voters, we can constructively work toward a solution by making a a realistic analysis of the merits and the demerits of the different parties and candidates that are running. So there there is a constructive realism 
that is legitimate and appropriate. But I would just caution you to be careful, whether it's with government or employer or your diet or your spouse or whatever, I would just caution you that there is a very fine line between constructive realism and grumbling against God's providence in your life. As if God hasn't done enough for you and as if you deserve more. And how dare God give you a spouse like this or a government like this or an employer like this. Be careful with your heart disposition towards your lot in life. Moses' complaints are much more directly and obviously toward God. Did I conceive all these people? These aren't my kids. It's obvious the Lord, Moses is talking to the Lord when he makes this complaint. We complain sometimes about the moral duties that God has placed upon us by virtue of our circumstances. After all, we discern much of our moral duty by looking at the circumstances that we providentially find ourselves in. Who in our lives needs Christ-like love? What good am I providentially situated to do? These are, these are questions which orient us with respect to our moral duty in life. Our temptation will be to shirk the things that God has providentially called us to, like Moses was tempted here to shirk what God had called him to do. Is it a sin to not be the leader of a nation? Well, no. Not in and of itself. But for Moses, yes, it would have been. Because God had called him to be the leader of this nation. Likewise, is it a sin for everyone in the world not to engage the people in your life with Christ-like love? Well, no. But for you, it may be. And we might feel like, well, did I give my neighbor birth? Did I conceive him such that I have a responsibility towards him? Did I conceive my employer? Did I give birth to my spouse? <laughs> right? Did, these aren't my kids. These aren't my responsibilities. And yet, the reality is that God has providentially placed us in a certain situation with responsibilities to people in our lives by virtue of the place that He has put us in and the web of relationships and the networks that He has placed us in. And these are my kids. I'm not responsible for them. It's an excuse that just doesn't cut it in God's eyes. You may not have a, an explicit calling given to you at a burning bush the way that Moses did. And yet, nevertheless, you have been providentially placed in situations with moral responsibilities towards people that you didn't ask for. And yet you find yourself in that situation and you have a responsibility to see those things. To see those things through. Moses' complaint is really, if you think about it, 
a complaint against God's sovereign prerogative to orchestrate the providence and circumstances of his life. How dare you put me in a situation like this where I have these responsibilities? This is a complaint against the Lord's sovereign prerogative. The second complaint that, God, that Moses makes to God is, I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. Now, in and of itself, it doesn't appear to be a sinful request. And the fact that God answers it by actually accommodating Moses and giving him some extra support lends support to the idea that it's not a sinful request. So I think here what we we probably have is an overwhelmed Moses bringing his case to God with a mix of sinful and non-sinful complaints. Realistically, this is often the way that our prayers toward God are. There's probably a mix of sinful and non-sinful aspects to our prayers and our complaints to God. We come maybe with a wrong attitude or a wrong way of thinking about this and that. And yet the very fact that we're coming to God is good. The very fact that we're looking to Him, we're asking Him for assistance is a good thing. And there may be legitimate aspects of our request to God. Very often, it's, it's not the case that we see somebody that's all good in Scripture or all bad. And, and very, very much of the time, there is this mixture. And we see that, I think, here with Moses in this situation where he makes, he makes an illegitimate complaint to God. These people are not my kids. I shouldn't be responsible for them. And yet there's also this legitimate complaint where he's just humbly acknowledging his limitations and his weaknesses. Lord, I can't, I can't do this, what you've called me to do. Now, how does God answer? Well, with respect to the legitimate aspect, God provides 70 elders to share the leadership burden. So God leaves the responsibility with Moses to take care of these people. And yet, God responds to Moses' complaint that he's not able to do it by providing extra support and extra resources for Moses. This shows us, if I can put it this way, God's reasonableness. Or we might say God's benevolence. Where God is not, God is not unwilling to do good to his people. God is not unwilling to help. Where there is a legitimate need and where we bring our legitimate needs to God. He's not a stingy God. He's not an unreasonable God unwilling to help. He's not like Pharaoh requiring us to make bricks without straw. If we need to produce a certain quota of bricks, God will provide the straw that we need to make a certain quota of bricks. As Hudson Taylor said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And so the reality is that um, God responds in a benevolent way here to Moses and a reasonable way to Moses and helps him. But we see in this passage here in Numbers chapter 11 
God responding in a very severe way to both to Moses and to the people of Israel. As the people of Israel leave Sinai, they should they should already be aware that God is not a God to be taken lightly. That God is not a God to be trifled with. All of the revelation that they have received at Sinai, with all of the various regulations and stipulations for the Old Covenant, should make it abundantly clear to them that they should not treat the Lord in a casual way or disregard Him or dishonor Him in any way. And yet it's one thing to know something in your head and and on paper, and it's another thing to experience it. And what we have here is God negotiating a relationship, or, or more like the people negotiating their relationship with God as they leave Sinai. How do we actually relate to one another on a day-to-day basis? So the, the, the Old Covenant, which was instituted at Sinai, is maybe something like a marriage license or a marriage certificate where the relationship on paper is now defined. And yet, as they leave Sinai, now here they have the task of actually moving in together, so to speak, and figuring out what does this relationship now actually look like. And God makes it abundantly clear from early on here as they leave Sinai that God is not going to let them dishonor Him. God is not going to let them disrespect Him like this. Moses even, it's, he's so, I don't, I don't even want to say the word cheeky because I don't know, that's almost like playful. Like, the nerve of Moses to go to God and say, the people whom I, among whom I am, number 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Like, what a disrespectful way to talk to the Lord. Where are you going to get all this meat, Lord? You said you're going to give them meat for a month. How are you going to do that? Get all the fish of the sea? What are you going to do? Get all, all kinds of flocks and herds and slaughter it for all these people? There's 600,000 people, Lord. How could you possibly give them meat to eat for a month? That's a very, very disrespectful way to talk to the Lord. And the Lord responds, Is the hand of the Lord shortened in other words you've seen all that I did for you in Egypt you think that I can't feed these people with meat for a month right my arm is not too short I'm not too weak like I can reach that thing on the, on the top shelf alright I'm not your size Moses <laughs> right? I can do things you can't do because my arm is longer than yours and the Lord makes quail blow in. It says, a day's journey in every direction and piled three feet high. Alright, I don't know if I left, I don't really know how long it would take. Let's say if I left my house basically on the south coast and started walking toward Animal Flower Cave. I don't know how long that would take me. Probably a day, I would think. I would say that would be around a day's journey. Now, with, our math doesn't have to be exact here. Maybe I would only make it to St. Thomas. <laughs> Maybe I would arrive at Animal Flower Cave at like 4 p.m. and I'd be like, oh, it's less than a day's journey. 
The math doesn't have to be exact here. But just consider how far someone could walk in a day. It's pretty far. And now imagine quail piled three feet high. That is so much quail. So the Lord vindicates himself in the eyes of Moses and shows him just how long his arm is. Now notice here that that is the worst repercussion that Moses experiences in this passage. Nothing else bad happens to Moses in this passage. The Lord just rebukes him and says, look, my arm is not too short, let me show you. And makes quail fall three feet high in a day's, for a day's journey in every direction. So Moses is obviously rebuked, humbled. His eyes are open a little bit more. Even as we saw last week, we see progression in Moses from the early stages to the later stages of the wilderness wanderings where in the beginning he's all, he's all like don't let us go up from here unless Hobab goes with us and by the late stages he's saying Lord don't take us up from here unless you go with us we see this progression in Moses as Moses learns more and more who God is he appears to him at the burning bush and he's like nah just send somebody else right and, and we see this reluctant, doubting, unwilling guy gradually and gradually won over to more and more confidence in God as time goes by. The Lord deals with Moses and matures the faith of Moses, which is certainly deficient and lacking as we go along. God is far more severe with the rest of the people. We see at the beginning of verse 11 that when the people complain about their misfortunes, the Lord sends a fire around the outskirts of the camp to consume the outlying parts of the camp. And then after God sends all this meat, we're not led to believe that the meat just rotted. What we're told here is that the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. There's something more than just natural cause and effect going on here. The Lord, the Lord gives these people meat, again, to vindicate His ability in their eyes. But at the same time, the Lord kills a number of them with a very great plague. The fact that the Lord is willing to send a fire into the camp and a plague into the camp to kill people because they complain about their misfortunes, because they complain about their diet, shows us just how serious God is about His honor, just how serious God is about the fact that He will not be disrespected. It also shows us what a serious thing even the sin of grumbling is like when we think about sins on a spectrum there legitimately are bigger sins than grumbling 
Not all sins are equal. We, we, re, we recognize that from various passages of Scripture. And, and this is not really a sermon about that particularly tonight. There are bigger sins than grumbling. And yet, nevertheless, the sin of grumbling is enough to justify the Lord killing people with fire and with a plague. That seems so harsh to us. But the fact that it seems so harsh to us only shows how lightly we think of sin. God consumes here the grumblers and the rabble to vindicate His holiness. And it's not more severe than they deserve. Otherwise, God would be unjust. And we know, of course, that that's not the case from the rest of Scripture. We ought to realize then the seriousness of sin by looking at how God deals with it here. Though there are New Testament examples of God's severity towards sin, like, for example, striking down Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, Occasions like like that are much fewer in the New Testament. And the reason is not that God changed. The reason is not that God became less and less strict. The way that sometimes parents of many children become less and less strict with the ninth or tenth. The reason is that the Old Testament was giving us categories to think in so that we could understand what Jesus did at the cross. The Old Testament helps us understand that when we sin against a holy God, we deserve to be consumed by fire. When we sin against a holy God, we deserve to be struck with a plague. The Old Testament helps us understand that. That when Jesus died on the cross, it was as if, as if He was consumed with fire, as the people were at Taborah. It's as if He was struck with a plague, like the rabble, so to speak. Jesus was struck so that we wouldn't have to be. Now here's the point of saying all that. It doesn't mean that we don't deserve it anymore. As if God had lightened up. It means that Jesus bore it for us. So we shouldn't think that God is less serious about sin. Rather, we should be grateful that Jesus suffered in our place, bore the wrath that we deserved, so that God can be just in passing over us and not always treating us as our sins deserve.